millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. It's May 12th, 2017. The FBI is still reeling from the sudden firing of director Jim Comey. Andrew McCabe has only been the acting director for three days. He's trying to talk to Rod Rosenstein about the issue weighing on his mind. How are they going to protect the Russia investigation? The FBI is already investigating whether the president has tried to interfere with that inquiry. But the deputy attorney general is distracted and upset. He can't believe the White House is making it look as if firing Comey were his idea. He says, there's no one I can talk to. There's no one here I can trust. I can't describe to you accurately enough the pressure and the chaos that Rod and I were trying to operate under at that time. It was incredibly turbulent, incredibly stressful, and it was clear to me that that stress was, was impacting the deputy attorney general. McCabe urges Rosenstein to appoint a special counsel. The credibility of the FBI and the Department of Justice are on the line. Without a special counsel, a firestorm threatens to destroy the nation's storied law enforcement institutions. It's five days later, Wednesday, May 17th, when McCabe sits beside Rosenstein in the basement of the United States Capitol, where they've assembled the Gang of Eight. The purpose of the briefing was to let our congressional leadership know exactly what we'd been doing. Opening a case of this nature, not something that an FBI director, not something that an acting FBI director would do by yourself. Then, Rosenstein announces that he's made a decision. He's appointed a special counsel to oversee the Russia investigation and the new inquiry into the president, Robert S. Mueller III. Major breaking news right now. The U.S. Justice Department has just named a special counsel in the Russia investigation. Let's go right to our justice correspondent, Pamela Brown. This is huge, Pamela. This is The Report, Episode 8, The End of the Beginning. The first seven episodes of this podcast told the story of Volume 1 of the Mueller Report. The Russian plot to interfere in the U.S. election. The social media manipulation operation. The hacking and dumping of stolen emails. What the Trump campaign knew and what they did. The secret business deals and the back channels with the Russians. And the many lies. In Volume 2, there's really only one story to follow. The president's efforts to stop or limit the investigation of everything Mueller describes in Volume 1. If Volume 1 is a spy thriller, then Volume 2 is a detective story. Mueller and his team are trying to solve the mystery of Russian election interference. And for some reason, the president is trying to stop them. And so the president's efforts to hamper the investigation become a story all its own. And in this part, there's only one question Mueller is trying to answer, whether or not the president obstructed justice. Before we get into stories of palace intrigue and the Oval Office, 
there's some background you need to understand. It feels a little technical, but this is central to understanding volume two. So to start, let's cover how this part of the investigation got started, what obstruction of justice means, and why it can be tricky for special counsels to investigate presidents. First, here's the way Mueller describes how this second part of the investigation got started. As always, it's being read by my colleague, Benjamin Wittes. Beginning in 2017, the President of the United States took a variety of actions toward the ongoing FBI investigation into Russia's interference in the 2016 presidential election and related matters that raised questions about whether he had obstructed justice. The order appointing the special counsel gave this office jurisdiction to investigate matters that arose directly from the FBI's Russia investigation, including whether the president had obstructed justice in connection with Russia-related investigations. What was that variety of actions that sparked the obstruction investigation? There were a series of interactions with Comey, which we'll cover in episodes to come. There were interactions with the heads of intelligence agencies about the Russia investigation. And there was the reasons Trump gave for firing Comey. The president's stated rationales for terminating Comey on May 9, 2017, included statements that could reasonably be understood as acknowledging that the FBI's Russia investigation was a factor in Comey's termination. Unlike Volume 1, Volume 2 only has a few characters. And you know most of them already. And there's just one crime you need to understand. Obstruction of justice. Former senior FBI official and U.S. attorney Chuck Rosenberg explains. Somebody endeavors to impede or impair the due administration of justice. That's a crime. They have to do so intentionally, of course. Um, but, and this is really a, a very important but, uh, they don't have to succeed. If I believe you are a witness against me and I try to have you killed, right, or uh, more benignly, I simply try to dissuade you from talking to the FBI, or I implore you to lie on my behalf, or delete computer files, I've obstructed justice. Even if you don't do any of those things, if I endeavor to obstruct justice, whether or not I'm successful, I've obstructed justice, at least for criminal purposes. Obstruction of justice is corruptly endeavoring to impede or impair the due administration of justice. And when investigators are trying to determine whether or not someone has obstructed justice, they're focusing on evidence of a few specific elements of the crime. The first of those elements is that there needs to be an investigation or proceeding at least being contemplated. Otherwise, there wouldn't be anything to obstruct in the first place and the person has to know about that investigation at the time. So another thing that a prosecutor must show is that the obstructive conduct is tied to some underlying investigation. If I have no idea that there's an underlying investigation and I have an innocent conversation with you about events in which we both participated, it would be very hard to show that I intended to obstruct um, your testimony, particularly if I had no idea you were giving testimony or that anybody would have any reason whatsoever to ask. In addition to showing some obstructive act and that an investigation exists and that the person knows about it, prosecutors have to demonstrate that the subject acted with, quote, a corrupt purpose. In other words, they have to show that the individual was motivated by something improper, that they wanted to impair or impede an investigation. 
It's not a crime if I'm someone who sells homeowner's insurance and I say, that's a nice house, it'd be a shame if something happened to it. But those same exact words are a crime if I'm a mobster trying to intimidate a witness. Intent matters. Intent is important to all um, criminal conduct, right? Recall, we cannot charge somebody uh, with a crime for making a mistake. I say to you, before the FBI questions you, I sure would hate to see anything bad happen to your dog, right? What am I implying there? What am I doing? I'm threatening you. I'm threatening your dog. I'm telling you that unless you sort of fall into line with my version of events, something bad is going to happen to you. That's an obstruction of justice. That is not an innocent attempt to remember what happened. That is a way of conveying to you, very simply, that if you cooperate with the FBI, your dog is dead. Now, it's not always that explicit, and that's why intent is important. Sometimes you have to infer intent uh, from surrounding circumstances, or you can infer intent from how often I reached out to different witnesses and what I asked them to do. One way of showing intent is to show a pattern of conduct. It can be tricky to investigate and prove whether someone obstructed justice, but it gets even more complicated when you're dealing with the President of the United States. Paul Rosenzweig, who formerly worked on the Ken Starr investigation of President Clinton, explains that one reason is that the President is the head of the Justice Department. The reason it's so hard is because the nature of executive authority in the United States is such that the president is both the ultimate authority over the Department of Justice and in some situations the subject of its investigation. So he's uniquely the type of defendant or potential defendant who can direct the people who are investigating him and how to conduct the investigation, which gives us pause, right, naturally. We really wouldn't want Vincent Gambino to be able to, to tell, you know, the, the U.S. attorney in New York, hey, stop using those wiretaps, dude. But at least in theory, that's the scope of presidential power and authority. This means that when you're thinking about the president and obstruction of justice, you have to balance the president's actions against both criminal statutes and also his unique constitutional role. But that doesn't mean that a president can't ever obstruct justice. Simply having a power does not mean that you can exercise it for corrupt, illegal motives or that you're immune from challenge on that basis. The pardon power is a good example. If a president took a personal $1 million bribe to grant you a pardon, the pardon would still be effective, but the taking of the bribe is a separate criminal activity. Harvard Law Professor Jack Goldsmith explains that it's not always easy to draw those lines. Some people think that as long as you limit the application of the obstruction of justice statute to corrupt actions by the president, there's no problem. The president can do what he wants as long as he's acting lawfully, and if he acts corruptly, then he's got a problem. So the problem with that is, is the question is, what does it mean for the president of the United States to corruptly interfere with an investigation since the president under the Constitution is in charge of investigations? He has the executive power, and that gives him the constitutional power to supervise uh, investigations, to consult with and order the attorney general to uh, act in certain ways. It also means that he has the power to fire people in the executive branch. And so the hard question is, what does it mean when a president is accused of firing someone like the FBI director? 
in what people say is an effort to stymie the investigation, the president is exercising a power that the Constitution gives him. How can he be acting corruptly if he's doing that is the question. We don't need to get too deep into the constitutional law here. But for now, and in the episodes that follow, it's useful to keep in mind this basic tension of where to draw the line for the president. And there's one final complication. The president is the head of the Justice Department, which includes the FBI, which investigates federal crimes like obstruction of justice. But how can he be trusted to investigate himself? When the investigation trenches upon an administration and its top-ranking officials, the fear is that another top-ranking official, a presidentially appointed senatorially confirmed attorney general or deputy attorney general, will put a political thumb on the scales of justice. And the mechanism of appointing an independent counsel is designed to try and provide the American public, as well as Congress and the press, an assurance that We've done the best that we can to avoid that. When there are concerns about DOJ objectivity in investigating the president or an administration, the special counsel is the mechanism we use to build in a little more independence. Which brings us to Robert Mueller. He's appointed special counsel. But what is it that he's investigating? And what is the connection between the investigation of activity in Volume 1 and the investigation in Volume 2? When Rosenstein appoints Mueller, the investigation that Mueller inherits is the one described by then-FBI Director Comey in congressional testimony before the House Intelligence Committee on March 20th, 2017. I have been authorized by the Department of Justice to confirm that the FBI, as part of our counterintelligence mission, is investigating the Russian government's efforts to interfere in the 2016 presidential election. And that includes investigating the nature of any links between individuals associated with the Trump campaign and the Russian government, and whether there was any coordination between the campaign and Russia's efforts. As with any counterintelligence investigation, this will also include an assessment of whether any crimes were committed. Keep this in mind. When Volume 2 talks about obstructing an investigation, The investigation at issue is the one into everything that was covered in Volume 1. What the Russians did, who knew, and who helped. That investigation is important. Let me say one more thing. Over the course of my career, I have seen a number of challenges to our democracy. The Russian government's effort to interfere in our election is among the most serious. And as I said on May 29th, this deserves the attention of every American. Because the investigation is important, efforts to obstruct it are equally serious. Rosenberg says prosecutors care a lot about obstruction because it goes to the heart of their work. What we're trying to do in our work is find the truth. We're trying to figure out what happened by assembling facts, talking to people, reading documents. Um, And if someone lies or counsels someone else to lie, it undermines the fact-finding, truth-finding process. It's a serious crime. Remember everything that Mueller finds happens in Volume 1. The indictment charges 13 Russian nationals for committing federal crimes while seeking to interfere in the United States political system. Our political dysfunction, our tribalism, and our hyper-partisanship 
was something that was really easy for them to stoke. Part of the reason active measures have worked in this U.S. election is because the commander-in-chief has used Russian active measures at time. He is told that the Russian government has some dirt on Hillary Clinton. I mean, I can't think of bigger lies. Julian Assange, the founder, the director of WikiLeaks, starts bragging and suggesting that he will have explosive Democratic emails. It's absurd, uh, and you know, there's no basis to it. Great move on delay by V. Putin. I don't think anybody knows it was Russia that broke into the DNC. She's saying Russia, Russia, Russia. I think they're highly effective because we're still talking about it today. Some of that we learned for the first time in the Mueller report. Some was reported in bits and pieces along the way. But in order to understand everything that happens in Volume 2, we need to reset the timeline to go back to June 2015, when Donald Trump is first declaring a long-shot presidential candidacy, and no one yet knows anything about what the Russians are planning to do. We need to rerun the tape from then until January 2017, when Trump is poised to become president, because it's important to understand the predicament he finds himself in. Obstruction of justice depends on intent. It depends on context. That's why Mueller spends the first pages of Volume 2 going back to outline the campaign timeline. What the president has done, what he's lied to the public about. In other words, what the president is worried an investigation might uncover. Ladies and gentlemen, I am officially running for president of the United States. Pretty soon, people start to notice Trump's unusual affinity for Russia. I said he was a strong leader, which he is. I mean, he might be bad, he might be good, but he's a strong leader. In February 2016, as Trump's candidacy is looking less like a punchline and more like it might actually work, the media starts looking at his campaign advisors and reporting on their ties to Russia. Major developments in the Russia investigation tonight. Tonight, the web of lies, half-truths, and memory failure involving Russia and the Trump campaign is growing larger. Breaking news from the Donald Trump campaign and another change at the top. Talk about this new reporting from the New York Times this morning about Paul Manafort mm -hmm. and his dealings with Viktor Yanukovych. We're told that retired Lieutenant General Michael Flynn was paid more than $33,750 by Russia's state-run broadcaster for a speech in Moscow in December. Carter Page about a trip to Moscow to give a speech during the campaign. All of a sudden, questions about Trump and Russia are everywhere. Here's Greg Miller of The Washington Post. Toward the end, the closer we got to the election, um, we started just getting lots of weird indications of concern about Russia and Trump. And of course, the Post broke the story about Russia's hack of the DNC. But even as we got close to the election, it, it all seemed like it was hard to really figure out, is, is this a bit of paranoia or is there something really deeply worrisome going on here. During the 2016 campaign, the media raised questions about a possible connection between the Trump campaign and Russia. The questions intensified after WikiLeaks released politically damaging Democratic Party emails that were reported to have been leaked by Russia. Questions are swirling about Trump and Russia, but no one yet knows what to make of it. The press isn't even sure there's really a story here. But when WikiLeaks dumps those emails in July, suddenly people start to take notice. That was another kind of um, 
awakening for reporters at the Post, especially on the political staff. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. In the span of a week in July, starting with when WikiLeaks dumps that first batch of 20,000 emails on July 22nd, just before the Democratic National Convention, the Russia story takes on a life of its own. The press is asking lots of questions, and the Trump campaign is issuing lots of denials. I have nothing to do with Russia. I have John. John, how many times do I have to say it? Are you a smart man? I have nothing to do with Russia. I have no relationship to Russia whatsoever. No debts. No debts. I have very little debt to anybody. I don't deal there. I have no businesses. I have no loans from Russia. I have nothing to do with Russia, folks, okay? He said, maybe Donald Trump is involved in projects with the Russians. The answer is no. No. And then, at a press conference on July 27th, Trump makes that infamous remark. Russia, if you're listening, I hope you're able to find the 30,000 emails. And then Trump appears at this rally in Florida where he utters these infamous words, Russia, if you're listening. When that happens, the post-politics reporters are having their, their morning kind of huddle at the hotel where they're staying. There are screens set up in the room. They're not paying close attention to what Trump is doing. Then these words come across, and everybody just kind of stops and says, holy crap, what the hell is that? And that's, that set in motion a more concerted scramble. We need to really start figuring out what this Russia story is. And a lot of that happens. A lot of that focus and internal energy comes because of what Trump does and says that day. At that same press conference, he denies that he has anything to do with Russia. And he denies it a lot. I have nothing to do with Russia. But if you look there, you'll see there's nothing in Russia. Let me tell you, it's not even about Russia. No, I have nothing to do with Russia. I have nothing to do with Russia. What do I have to do with Russia? I have nothing to do with Russia. I have nothing to do with Russia. That was all a lie, of course. All through the campaign, insisting no business interest in Moscow has nothing to do with Russia. And, you know, meanwhile, his fixer uh, is pursuing uh, in fits and starts uh, the possibility of a Trump Tower in Moscow. Um, And that's going on almost until the Republican National Convention when Trump has anointed the party's nominee. So, I mean, that's a huge lie. Basically, Trump is seeking to enrich himself and his family with a deal with one of America's main adversaries while he's running for the United States. And by the way, he is not not only not telling the public about it, but he is feeding misinformation to the American public about it. These lies to the public 
that Trump has no contact with Russia, that the campaign doesn't know anything about the email hacking or WikiLeaks. Become part of a Trump campaign party line. The campaign starts to distance itself from any appearance of ties to Russia, both by issuing denials and firing people like Paul Manafort and Carter Page as stories of their ties to Russia emerge. But the Russia story just won't go away. And on October 7th, the U.S. government puts out a statement saying that the Russian government is behind the hacks of the DNC and other U.S. political groups. They put out a statement in October. It's fairly cryptic. It doesn't mention Vladimir Putin. It doesn't say that the Russians are trying have are favoring a specific candidate in this race. But when hours later, WikiLeaks releases stolen Podesta emails, the Clinton campaign accuses the Trump campaign of knowing about it in advance. When vice presidential candidate Mike Pence is asked about it, here's what he says. Some have suggested on the left that it, all this bad stuff about Hillary, nothing bad about Trump, uh, that your campaign is in cahoots with WikiLeaks. I, I, nothing could be further from the truth, I think. But the truth is that Trump did appear to have some advanced knowledge of upcoming releases and was actively seeking out more information from Roger Stone. Then, of course, Trump wins the election. Shortly after, Russian officials bragged to the press that the Russian government had maintained contacts with Trump's, quote, immediate entourage during the campaign. In response, Hope Hicks, who had been the Trump campaign spokesperson, said, quote, we are not aware of any campaign representatives that were in touch with any foreign entities before yesterday when Mr. Trump spoke with many world leaders, unquote. Hicks gave an additional statement denying any contacts between the campaign and Russia. Quote, it never happened. There was no communication between the campaign and any foreign entity during the campaign, unquote. On December 10th, 2016, the press reported that U.S. intelligence agencies had, quote, concluded that Russia interfered in last month's presidential election to boost Donald Trump's bid for the White House, unquote. The CIA has concluded that Russia intervened in the election to help you win the presidency. Your reaction? I think it's ridiculous. I think it's just another excuse. Uh, I don't believe it. Uh, there's great confusion. Nobody really knows. And hacking is very interesting. Once they hack, if you don't catch them in the act, you're not going to catch them. They have no idea if it's Russia. A week later, on December 18th, John Podesta goes on TV and questions if Trump officials had been in touch with Russians. Were they in touch with the Russians? I think those are still open questions, and the, and the electors have a right to know what the answers are if, if, the, if the U.S. government has those answers before the election. That's also why I said there needs to be an independent investigation into right. this. That same day, incoming chief of staff Reince Priebus goes on Fox News Sunday. He refuses to say whether Trump accepts the intelligence community conclusion that Russia interfered in the U.S. election. And there's this. Do you flatly deny any contact, any coordination between Mr. Trump, his campaign, his associates, and the Russians in interference? I mean, even this question is insane. I mean, of course we didn't interfe interface with the Russians. I mean, this whole thing... On December 29th, 2016... The Obama administration announces that in response to Russian election interference, it's imposing sanctions and other measures. President-elect Trump is asked for his response. I think we ought to get on with our lives. I think that computers have complicated lives very greatly. 
But Trump does say he plans to meet with intelligence community officials the following week for a briefing on Russian interference. That briefing takes place on January 6th, 2017. There's this crazy sequence of events where the nation's top intelligence officials, including the, the Clapper and Brennan and Comey, have to make this excruciating trip to New York to brief Trump in Trump Tower on the findings of this intelligence assessment and tell him, look, we're sorry to say this, but Russia had it in the bag for you. They were working to help you all along, and, and they lay out you know, some of their, their evidence for it. Following the briefing, the intelligence community released the public version of its assessment, which concluded with high confidence that Russia had intervened in the election through a variety of means with the goal of harming Clinton's electability. The assessment further concluded with high confidence that Putin and the Russian government had developed a clear preference for Trump. Today, the director of national intelligence took the unusual step of releasing an unclassified version of an investigation that details computer hacking, propaganda, and fake news articles. President-elect Trump was briefed on the classified report today, but he concluded that the hacking of sensitive Democratic Party files had no effect on the election. When Trump hears this assessment in that briefing shortly before the public release, his response is curious. This is perceived by Trump himself as a direct attack on his victory, an attempt to discredit it. And, so, and he reacts not in the, as, an, as we would expect an American president to, or alarm and concern for the country. He reacts with concern about what this means for his own ego. And the reaction they get is staggering, right? So Reince Priebus, who was then Trump's chief of staff, his first reaction is, well, how can we put out a statement? What, can, what sort of statement can we put out that will make clear that this in no way undercuts the um, viability of the, of the election? Um, you know, it's just, just it's an odd but very telling response. As I said, no cons no evident concern for the country, no evident impulse to to protect or or retaliate or punish Russia. It's all about how do we protect the boss. When the meeting concludes, Comey briefs Trump privately on a sensitive matter. A former British intelligence official has been circulating a document that claims that Trump has been compromised by the Russians, including a famously lurid allegation involving Trump being videotaped in a Moscow hotel room. It's hard to, you know, looking across the landscape of American history, have we ever had a conversation like this involving an American president where the FBI director has to go in, everybody clears out of the room, Clapper leaves, Brennan leaves, uh, and Comey stays, and he has to tell Trump, look, you know, we need to tell you that the there is a there is a document in circulation in Washington, uh, and in fact the FBI had had taken possession of that document months earlier, which says a lot of seemingly crazy stuff, and, and including that that you uh, were consorting with prostitutes at a hotel in Moscow, in which you ordered them to to debase a, a, a mattress where the Obamas had stayed. I can't imagine what it was like inside that room. Days later, BuzzFeed News publishes a trove of unverified allegations about the president-elect, a document that would come to be known as the Steele dossier. 
when BuzzFeed published a dossier of alleged Russian dirt on Donald Trump and his campaign. Donald Trump has denied claims that he has been compromised by Russia. Tonight we have more on the ongoing saga of the Trump dossier. Phil, let's talk about the dossier. All these news organizations have aspects or pieces, bits and pieces of this Steele dossier. None of it really sees the light of day. And it tells you something about how journalism works, because the fact that Comey briefs the president on this, moves this document from the status of something that most newspapers are not willing to report on into something that has been briefed to the president, therefore is a legitimate item to to discuss in news uh, and is posted on BuzzFeed. Unsurprisingly, Trump is unhappy at this development. I mean, so that is devastating to what was always going to be a very difficult and dysfunctional relationship between Donald Trump and the intelligence community. He, after this, this document is posted, his reaction, you know, is is really strident. He uses that infamous tweet likening U.S. spy agencies to, to Nazi Germany, basically accusing the CIA and FBI of carrying out a smear campaign against him, one last shot against Donald Trump. Several advisors recalled that the president-elect viewed stories about his Russian connections, the Russian investigations, and the intelligence community assessment of Russian interference as a threat to the legitimacy of his electoral victory. Hicks, for example, said that the president-elect viewed the intelligence community assessment as his, quote, Achilles heel, unquote, because even if Russia had no impact on the election, people would think Russia helped him win, taking away from what he had accomplished. There is no collusion between certainly myself and my campaign, but I can always speak for myself and the Russians, zero. Donald Trump has won the presidency. But he's one knowing full well he was getting an assist from the Russians. And he's told a lot of lies along the way. Suddenly, there are questions coming from every direction about whether the Russians changed the outcome of the election, about what Trump knew. The outgoing administration has ordered an intelligence community review. Clinton's campaign manager is publicly questioning whether the Trump campaign was involved with Russian interference. On January 6th, the intelligence community assessment leaves no question as to what the Russians did and why. And then BuzzFeed posts that lurid dossier. Within days, the Senate Intelligence Committee announces it's launching an investigation. The House Intelligence Committee says it's conducting a review, too. And then the Senate Judiciary follows. Three congressional investigations, the entire D.C. press corps, and the Federal Bureau of Investigation are all asking questions. And the president and his associates know that the answer to those questions are politically damaging at best, or worse, maybe even criminal. What does one do in such a situation? If you're the president of the United States, the one investigative subject who gets to give orders to the Justice Department, you have an option. You can try to prevent investigators from asking questions. And almost immediately upon taking office, that's what Trump proceeds to do. That story starts next week on The Report. The election, it turns out, wasn't the end of the Russia story. It was only the beginning.
Thank you for listening to part eight of The Report. This podcast is made possible by the generous support of the William and Flora Hewlett Foundation and the Democracy Fund, and by listeners like you. To support this project, please go to lawfareblog.com. The Report is a production of Lawfare and Goat Rodeo in Washington, D.C. Ian Enright is the executive producer. Production assistance from Shar Dreyer. From the Lawfare team, the project is led by executive editor Susan Hennessy. Editor-in-chief is Benjamin Wittes. Interviews conducted by managing editor Quinta Jurassic. Recordings by Michaela Fogel and Jacob Schultz. Additional assistance by Eugenia Lostri and Gordon All. Special thanks to Chuck Rosenberg, Paul Rosenzweig, Jack Goldsmith, Greg Miller, and you, the listening audience. To support this show, please share this podcast wherever you can. And while you're at it, please subscribe and review this podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and wherever you listen. Our website, lawfareblog.com, is where you can learn more about Lawfare, read our work, and support our mission. Until next time. You're listening to Goat Rodeo. Keep an ear out for us. Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads.